There's this awesome venture quote, startups would be easy if it weren't for the people. Most challenges inside of a company are having to deal with people. And it's just about getting the right chemistry to work. What are the things that you see, hear, feel real time in boardrooms? It's an incredible time to be a young and up and coming leader because the opportunities you will be afforded may never happen again. That's such a unique lens from an investor. I found that the prevailing wisdom was like, actually, you should hire somebody who's been there and done that. My favorite question in a reference is, I'll ask about a person's strengths. And then instead of asking about weaknesses, the way I like to frame it is, what kinds of people does this person need around them to be successful? Hey, everyone. Welcome back to the HR Heretics podcast, where we get into the real talk of company construction. These are the conversations that happen between founders, chief people officers, and board members behind closed doors. We're heretics in this industry because there's a culture of silence around important business topics, especially with people. But on the show, we tell the truth and expect the same from our guests. Today, we're excited to bring you a conversation with Tom Tungus. Tom is the general partner at Theory Ventures, which he founded in 2022. Before that, Tom was a well-known general partner at Redpoint for 14 years, where he made investments in the likes of Looker and worked closely with our own Kelly Dragovich. I am so stoked for you to hear his boardroom perspective and an inside look at Google's acquisition of Looker. Tom is one of the smartest people in venture, a statement that will come as no surprise since so many of us read his newsletter. And he has a lot to say about what the future has in store for company structure as well as talent. Last week, listeners told us that our segment about exec terminations was really valuable. So stay tuned after Tom's interview for another short segment where Kelly and I dig into how we think about political discussions at work, how each of us are navigating it, and how you should think about navigating it at your company. Now, on to our conversation with Tom Tungus. Tom, thanks so much for coming on. You had an article last year called Soft in the Middle, which I think was a little before its time. You write about span of control, which is the ratio of managers to doers, and suggest that now might be the time to squeeze the middle and eliminate a lot of the middle manager roles. I've seen Zuck talk about this recently as Meta has been removing a lot of the middle management. I'm curious, is there like a specific company that made you have this insight? No, it wasn't a company. It was, I was talking to a friend of mine who's a private equity investor. And he was talking about taking a company over and then looking at the efficiencies of it. And he wanted to calculate this ratio of, of the entire company population. How many doers were there? How many people actually producing work? And it was really small. I think it was like 10% of people inside of a multi-thousand person company were actually delivering work. You look at that cost structure, it doesn't make any sense. It can make sense. So if you're in a hyper growth organization and you think about like a span of control, which is the number of employees per manager, ideally lots of studies have been done. The ideal number is about seven. But in a hyper growth company, you can imagine you're hiring a manager and then that manager is hiring a team. And so they may only have two or three. So span of control on average is less. But over time, what you really want to get to, and particularly as a company sort of stabilizes or achieves a certain stable growth trajectory, ideally you're at that seven where you can drive a lot of efficiency. It's so interesting that you mentioned it because again, like Zuck has been all over this, like since the beginning of the year. And as I was going through and researching you, I saw that you talked about this last year. So maybe Zuck was uh, getting into Tom's 
archives. <laughs> I doubt that. <laughs> he has um, way more important things to do. <laughs> I, I, I don't know. I, because I am actually now starting to hear it from other founders. And I think there's now a prevailing wisdom that manager only is not really acceptable in startups. And I'm curious, as you think about company construction and you think about the ratio of doers to managers and like who should be doing what, like as a VC, what's your take on this and how do you evaluate it? I think this changes as a function of the capital markets environment. In the last 10 years, we had these environments where capital was readily available. And so if I can raise a lot of money, then what I'm going to do as a leader of a company is I will hire a pretty senior exec team because I have the capital to be able to have a VP sales and a VP of marketing hire a team of three to five people out of the gate. And uh, my plan is for each of those departments to probably double or triple within the course of the next 12 to 18 months. So my preference is since capital is cheap, I would rather hire the leader out of right at the beginning in order to position the company so that for a lot of growth and efficiency is less important. Now we're in an environment where efficiency matters. You look at headcount growth plans and there's there's much smaller than they were 24 months ago, which means the productivity per person and the efficiency per person is the North Star metric as opposed to being able to grow headcount as quickly as possible to hit a certain growth number, irrespective of cost. And so I, I agree with you. I think a lot more founders are, one, they're raising maybe a bit less money and so may not be able to afford that VP uh, right in the beginning. And they may need to hire a hands-on director who's carrying a quota or is expected to manage uh, and actually do some work in, in concert with two or three other people on the team. The growth at all costs kind of pre-macro was a, was a thing, right? And managers and leaders had a very long leash, almost like unlimited. Hire, hire what you need, hire what you need. And you had a lot of these layers, T-structures, individuals reporting to individuals. I mean, it, it just got almost unruly. And a part of that is ARR per employee and how that fits in to now looking at top line and bottom line together. I'm curious if you push your portfolio companies to look at ARR per employee and what that range looks like for you, because I've seen it all over the place. What should it be? In the heyday of free money, you were looking at ARR per company of like 90 to 120K. It's kind of the benchmark. And I agree with you. I think you'll see companies, particularly to be in later where 300 to 500K per employee now is the expectation. I was just talking about this with the VP of sale. I mean, the advances with the LLMs and a lot of the automation of customer support work or marketing work or sales work. At what point will we start to see AI pressure that productivity even higher to drive efficiencies? I wouldn't be surprised to see those numbers actually increase further. I'm just really curious about like how you advise companies on talent today versus how you were advising them five or six years ago? Are you telling that, I mean, obviously hire less, I think is everyone's gotten that message. But when you hire less, like you have to run leaner. And so I'm curious if you're seeing companies index on more senior talent, uh, what the comp is looking like for those and how you're thinking about advising from your seat. Well, there are a couple of big challenges in the space. One is the hangover from very high valuation. So senior executives, many senior executives are wondering which companies to enter because if a company has raised a lot of money and has a large preference stack because they've taken a lot of investment and the post money, the valuation of the company is very high relative to current multiples, then that can be a difficult entry point because the economics or the financial reward of joining that business is challenged. 
So for a lot of the strong executives who are typically going in and out of startups, that mid-stage is actually a financially relatively unattractive place to go from a current job into a new job. And so you have this barbelling where many of the senior executives are either going to very early stage companies, founding their own, or they're deciding to go later within the public companies because at least then there's a significant cash compensation that the equity is liquid. So that's a, that's been a big change. And the combination of this plus the efficiency drive, I think is leading to that that behavior we talked about before, which is people looking for the step-up candidates who are player coach. I'm seeing that too. It's almost this paralysis in the, the, the VC community right now on both joining and potentially leaving a company because the grass definitely isn't greener at this, at this point in time. What are you seeing as far as exec search and how long those searches are taking as a result? There's definitely a lengthening. And I think the way that executive searches were run in the heyday, you would hire great recruiting firm. And maybe within, if you were hiring like a VP sales, you might be able to find somebody within 60 to 90 days. You were probably paying 75th to 90th percentile compensation. And that was driving the comp each year higher and higher. People were flexible on equity because equity on a relative basis was inexpensive because the post was very high. And now those searches, are, they last longer. They last longer because one, candidates are more discerning. One aspect is this financial reason. People are actually running calculations to determine at what price do I expect to generate what return, which is, I think is fantastic because candidates should know exactly what they're getting themselves into. They're investing their most valuable resource, which is time. So that's one dynamic. I think the other challenge is there are questions around what the fundraising prospects are for a business that weren't present two or three years ago. And with the mid-stage of the market being uneven or choppy or, I mean, at the beginning of this year, it was just non-functional because the bid-ask spread was so broad. That raises a lot of doubt. So what we see, or what I see, are executives wanting to talk to the existing board, understanding how committed they are to, the, to sustaining the business in the case that they can't raise and what that would look like in different scenarios. You had mentioned the executives either going really early or going really late. What needs to be true for there to be more even distribution? I think there's two scenarios. One is that the series A's of 23 mature into the series B's and C's of 24 and 25, which will just naturally happen. And the valuations will be more in line with market. The cap tables will be straightforward and those companies will have attractive growth rates. So that will happen. The other thing that could happen is that some of the mid or late stage companies correct their 49As and maybe are able to either take flat or down rounds or reprice the preferred in such a way where the economics of an executive taking on a significant grant makes sense again on an individual basis. I think that is much rarer. It's much less likely to happen. That second one will happen more by exception. And I think what we're really waiting for are those A's of 23 to mature into the B's and C's of 24 and 25. On the latter though, I'm really interested from your seat as an investor, because some of these are actually real businesses. The ones that just raised on hype and didn't have revenue, I think we're starting to see a lot of those companies die. But there are that actually are just real businesses that raised at a valuation that they're not going to be able to grow into. And so a down round needs to happen. But as an investor, that's got to be tough for you. How do you evaluate that decision, even though it might be what's best for the business? I think you have to be unemotional about it. If you hold a stock in Google 
if you hold a share of Google stock in, or maybe Microsoft, I probably know the numbers a bit better, but like the, a share of Microsoft was maybe 220 and then it went up to 360 and then it fell to like 290, 270, and then it rose up again to 320 and 360. And so in the public markets, the value of these companies is marked every second, basically every 15 seconds. And that's a function of not only what's happening inside of the business and how how well they're running the company, but it's also a function of what's happening outside of the business. And it's easy to look at private companies and say they exist within their own ecosystem and that the pricing doesn't change. And that's been true for 12 years, right? We've had an unabated bull market for 12 years. Now we're finally starting to come to the realization that we have to pay the piper for printing 30% more dollars than have ever existed. I mean, venture capitalists might feel the pinch with their investors where they have to report to their LPs that position and investment is, has decreased. But what I found within the institutional LP base is people are just very realistic. Like if the public book is down 50%, the private book or the collection of investments should also be down 50%. And if we can all be reasonable, then it, then it should work out. You know, there's that loss aversion theory where the gain of a dollar never feels quite as good as the equivalent pain on the loss of a dollar, and which is hard to do. But if you can do it, it's the better thing to do long term. Hey, everyone. We'll be right back in a moment after a word from our sponsors. Hey, everybody. Your co-host Nolan here. High performance and great culture should never be at odds. They're better together. With Lattice People Management Platform, companies efficiently run people programs that create enviable cultures where employees want to do their best work. Serving thousands of customers of all sizes globally, Lattice helps everyone work better together. Learn why companies from Slack to the LA Dodgers choose Lattice. Visit lattice.com slash HR heretics today. That's lattice, L-A-T-T-I-C-E dot com. Have you ever had a negative experience hiring an executive? I certainly did at Carta and DoorDash, and that's why I started Continuum, the modern AI-powered executive search firm. Continuum connects executives and senior operators to venture-backed tech companies for fractional and full-time roles. You could post any executive-level role to Continuum's marketplace and search through our database of world-class experience leaders. Continuum will intelligently surface your opportunity to relevant operators. They'll express interest and show up in your inbox. It's like magic. There's no platform fee or hidden cost. You only pay the person you hire, and you can cancel at any time. If you're thinking about hiring an exec in the middle of a search right now or don't know how to solve a problem, I get it. Scaling is hard. Companies like Athletic Greens, Weights and Biases, Masari, and more than 100 other tech companies have turned to Continuum for help solving their people ops, go-to-market, engineering, and finance challenges. So check out Continuum in the description below. Ping me on LinkedIn if you have any questions or head to joincontinuum.com. So Tom, speaking of paying the piper, I have another question on talent. Over the last 12 years, many successful execs have either transitioned to advisory consulting roles or retired after having a lot of great outcomes in their careers, right? And now we're having to scrape new talent pools or find new executives or convince those retired ones to come back. What are your thoughts and insights on this? And are there certain roles or functions that are experiencing the greatest shortages? I think it means it's an incredible time to be a young and up and coming leader because the opportunities you will be afforded may never happen again. So I think it's very, very exciting. I agree with you. I've seen it across, I mean, the LP base, you had many CIOs who said, I've had an amazing run that's not going to happen again in my lifetime, so I'll retire. You've had many CEOs, like you said, who built effectively little 
funds of great portfolio companies of their time. Now there's just a lot of like chewing gravel where riff after riff and correction and down rounds. And, but I think the people who stick it out and grit it out, they're the ones who will build really disciplined companies that have the resolve and the fortitude to be able to thrive in really tough markets. And when inevitably the market rips again, which it always does, they'll be in an unbelievable position. So I think it's a, it's a really wonderful time for young and up and coming leaders. That's such a unique lens from an investor. I was a C-level exec at 29. You don't know everything that you're doing, right? You're learning as you go along. And I found that the prevailing wisdom from investors was like, actually, you should hire somebody who's been there and done that. And so how do you, how do you kind of deal with that tension for like, it's the best time, we should be betting on people versus from your seat, it's actually probably safer to go with the person who has the experience and who's been there and done that. Being in the same seat as Nolan when I was 31. So I'll double down on that no question. No way, yes, look at you guys. That's awesome. The most important thing I think in an executive is the flexibility of mind which means you need to take what you've learned in the past and apply it in the situation where it applies and then learn what you need to learn in order to, to make sure that it works within the existing organization. Somebody who's had, let's say, a VP of sales who's had three successes, three unicorns back to back to back, there's a playbook that crystallizes in their mind about the right way to build a company. And that playbook may have worked very, very well in the last 10 years, but, but won't work this time, right? And there are many and you can find them, and you, but you have to look for them. There are great executives who will take the time to listen to the organization, understand the nuances about a new business and come in. Just in the same way where you have young and up-and-coming leaders who have an arrogance and think they know it all. Um, and then you have other up-and-coming leaders who will learn on the job, as you both did very successfully. So I think it's less about how successful somebody has been in the past and more what is that learning mindset. In the past 10 years, I would agree with you, like the default for VCs is do hire somebody who has done it before. And that's true in a hyper-growth environment where the cost to a startup for teaching somebody on the job could be 10 or 15 percentage points of ultimate market share, especially at the executive level. But now in most categories, let's set AI aside for a second, in most categories, the growth rates of these businesses have come down quite a bit and the cash balances of these businesses have also decreased. So the relative attractiveness of actually teaching somebody on the job has increased. I want to talk about executive terminations and specifically like, you know, I think the data right now is that the average executive lasts about 18 months, which when you think about it is, is crazy. Like you take three to six months to hire them. You take another quarter to onboard them. They're there for nine months. They're bringing people on during that time. And then you decide to terminate them. And then usually the team then churns out and then you start the cycle all over again. I, I heard you say in a podcast that you think one out of every four exec hires are going to get wrong. How do you think about getting it right? And then when it, when it doesn't go right, how do you think about then making that change? I think there's two reasons why executives don't work out. The first is they were the wrong person for the role. And what I mean by that is they were either like, the diligence process on that person was not effective enough or the company didn't realize what it is that it actually they needed within that role. And it took somebody coming in to show them that the DNA they thought they needed is the wrong DNA. Uh, and so that could be like 
we really wanted an enterprise sales leader, but actually most of our business is in the mid-market and that transition didn't work. So they ended up hiring a VP, uh, enterprise sales team, uh, or the market wasn't there. The second reason I think it doesn't work out is predominantly a cultural fit. There's certain people come up within, and I'll keep using sales here, but within the Oracle style of sales versus the Salesforce style of sales versus a PLG. And those cultures are very different. The way that they build teams, the way that they manage quotas. You have certain leaders who manage more through authority and respect and other leaders who manage more through camaraderie and friendship. And both of those can work, but it just has to be the right fit. I think those are probably equally common in terms of failure modes, at least what I've seen. When it's time to to part ways, we've we've decided it's not the right fit. Talk to me about like how a founder communicates with you. What does it look like when it goes well from your sides? Like obviously we're in, we're in a tough situation, but like what what do you expect from a founder in communication and maybe even the head of people to you as it relates to executive performance and then departures? So let's go through the whole life cycle. So typically at an executive, a CEO is leading the, the search, and then at the very last step. I might have a conversation with that person. At the very first board meeting, let's say we're hiring VP of marketing, my expectation is the VP of marketing uh, speaks and says, these are my observations on the company. This is what's going well. This is not what's going well. The second board meeting is, as a result of everything that I've learned, here's my plan. And so this is like, you have two quarters of ramping up and then a year of execution before you decide. At the second board meeting, I will either look to, to the CEO or the CEO likely do this proactively. Say, what do you think about this new person? How is it going? And what I'm looking for there is a balanced scorecard, but I'm particularly paying attention to the negatives to understand and to see within during the next board meeting or during subsequent interactions, whether my perception of those weaknesses are consistent with the founders um, and just kind of watch. And then we track them over the course of a couple of different quarters. And if two or three quarters later, it's not a fit, there's two different scenarios. One is the CEO just decides uh, this wasn't a fit and communicates that after the fact. Or the other is that a CEO might call me and the other board members and say, I'm thinking about this. What do you think? And the reality is by the time somebody has gotten to the point where they're seriously thinking about moving someone out of the organization, not a whole lot you can do. The best thing to do is to move really quickly. On the tenure piece, um, I'm just curious I've heard this a ton in my my career, right? Uh, you, you hire someone in high high growth venture at the executive level, C suite level, with a, a, an eighteen to twenty four month run in your head, uh, and then the company changes so much, it grows so fast, right? The world goes by; it's like a different place by the time eighteen months rolls around, even if they're doing great. Uh, and I'm just curious how you coach founders and think about elongating that tenure and how executives stay or re-up in their role because it changes so much. And if that that has shifted over the years for you in that seat. This is true for everyone in the organization, including board members. Uh, so myself included. But I think the, the way that I think about um, a person in a role is about slope. And in hyper-growth companies, the business has certain needs and the very best leaders are the ones who anticipate the needs of the business and learn those skills before the business requires it of them. Inevitably, we all hit a limit where either we can't learn fast enough or it just doesn't play to our strengths. And so it makes sense for somebody else to lead a function or replace us in a role. As hard as that may be, it's probably the right thing for both sides. I think one of the most important things is just when somebody comes into a startup, you have to put them in a, a place where ideally they're 
you give them sort of an, at the executive level, a little bit of an amorphous title to buy yourself that flexibility. If this person does massively outperform, great. You'll go from head of to director or head of to VP. If not, we'd still love to have you in the organization. You're amazing. We will help you grow. We need a leader managing you in order to help you grow because the CEO can't spend that time. And so I think that that's a piece of coaching we give a lot. It's possible sometimes. Sometimes it's just not possible. You need to give someone a title and that's what they expect. The head of roles usually are, they, they elicit either full favoritism or a polarizing opposite effect. What about interim roles? Are you a fan of interim roles? Interim is sometimes necessary. It's ambiguous because are they in the seat for three months, six months? Yes, interim, if there's a clear expectation of the tenure of that person, right? So you might... You might take a CEO, make them interim CEO, and you may communicate to the company that we're running a CEO search and the CEO is part of that process and we expect to hire somebody within six months. I think that makes a lot of sense, but you need that clarity on what the tenure is because otherwise there is a fog around whether or not employees should build a relationship and cement this idea that this person will be in the role for the long time. And what does that mean for the internal operating cadence and Let's stay on talent. Like you, you diligence companies all the time. I'm curious, how do you diligence people? Like, do you diligence executive teams? And what is your process for doing so? There's this awesome venture quote, and I don't know who said it, but um, it said, uh, startups would be easy if it weren't for the people. Most challenges inside of a company are having to deal with people. And it's just about getting the right chemistry to work. One of the things that we spend a lot of time understanding is one, the dynamics between the founders is really important. How healthy are those relationships? How deep? How long? And can they sustain the inevitable ups and downs and disputes and confrontations? And how do they handle that? That's really important. I think the other thing that we do are in the references. And my favorite question in a reference is I'll ask about a person's strengths. And then instead of asking about weaknesses or areas of opportunity, the way I like to frame it is what kinds of people does this person need around them to be successful? Which, because we all work together in teams and great teams work in tension where the strengths of one balance the weaknesses of another. So we're thinking about what, how does the composition of the team, what does it need to look like in order to be successful and at different stages? So on the head of people, I'm really curious, do you spend time assessing heads of people? And from your lens as an investor, what does a great head of people look like? Great question. So we are often investing at the seed and the A. So that's probably two to three years before there's a head of people. Uh, the way I think about it is there used to be this function that's called HR. And HR was about legal minimization, minimization of legal risk. And during the mid-2000s, there was a change to the head of people, which was, that's important. And what we really need, our most important or our most valuable asset within the business is the human capital, is the people inside of the company. And so instead of just minimizing the risk, let's actually invest and help them grow. So if I think about uh, a people leader, a big part of it is there's a strategic component to a people leader, which is thinking about the, the people within the organization. How do we help them grow? How do we segment those people, reward those people, particularly on the exponential curves? How do we build a culture where the next part of it then is the recruitment part of the, the business, which is all about how do we get that funnel, the onboarding experience, the engagement, the, the surveys? And then the very last part is the really great strategic people leaders are the ones who take a sense of ownership around the culture of, of, 
uh, place. And the, the, a lot of the times the culture will have been set by the early employees and the founding team, but they're the ones who round out the culture and make sure that it's a part of every uh, employee's experience. One of the things that I learned at Google, Eric, I didn't think he was as great of a CEO as I now do. Um, and that's probably unfair given he was the head of one of the largest companies ever in the history of the world. But what I realized in retrospect was he had a way of leading that was enabled by the people function that allowed him to have a voice in every conversation. So every time we were meeting as a product and an engineering team and we had a question, we would think back to either the values of the company or the principles that Eric would espouse that were constantly being disseminated through the company. And so in that way, he was in every room. And I think amazing people leaders are the ones who are able to, to do that effectively. And as you're maybe in your, your later stage companies, Tom, in boardrooms, right? What are the things that you see, hear, feel real time in that room that you know that group has the right people leader? The relationship with the CEO is extremely tight. There's this function at Google uh, and other companies called the human resources business partner. And when a human resources business partner, a head of people is a key strategic ally to the CEO, you can see there's an there's an intimacy there because the CEO is going to the head of people and saying, I have this difficult conversation or there's this misalignment here. And they're, effect- they're, an, they're an internal consultant about interpersonal issues and then organizational design. That's one of the aspects. I think that that's like the gold standard. If, if you can see that relationship and that level of trust, almost a management coach in a sense to the CEO. And if you're a solo CEO, then maybe you want to hire this function sooner rather than later. I think the second is a pulse of the company, really seeing that this person understands we went through a riff last quarter. This is how people are feeling. Proactive surveys, understanding events, trying to really understand what's going on inside of the business. And that's like softer and a little harder to describe, but you can see some people leaders are a little bit more disconnected. Some people leaders are people of the people. You can kind of call them. That's another one. And then the last, and this is probably a personal preference, people who are very data-oriented. Like you look at the recruiting funnel, you can take a look at the recruiting funnel and, and determine as a function, like how many people are recruiting out of PhD programs? How many people are recruiting out of master's programs? What are the success rates? I think those would be the three I'd pick. I want to transition and to talk a little bit about Looker. You and, and Kelly work together on Looker. Looker is a, a fantastic company with a fantastic outcome. I think what's interesting when I look at Looker and I think about today's moment is lots of people have been talking about more M&A on the future, except like most people don't have an insight into how M&A actually works. Let's just start at the highest level of like, how did that process actually work? Um, and, and like, how did we get to like, okay, Looker is going to be sold to Google. Successful companies will have many M&A offers along the way. And, or maybe not offers, but indications of interest that an acquisition could happen. And at some point, what, it, what happens is that the, the management team decides that for a wide variety of different reasons, at this point in time, it's prudent to consider it. There's, a, there's also a fiduciary, like a legal requirement that if an acquirer does show significant signs of interest, the CEO must take it to the board. So there's that dynamic too, but... Uh, setting that aside, at some point, a management team will say it's worth considering. The further you go in an M&A process and before the term sheet, 
the more likely it is that the acquisition closes. So at the very beginning, it's easy to walk away because people have a sense of pride and the company is doing really well. The more people start to think about how much money they'll make or what their life would be like in terms of the acquire, the more the acquisition process takes on a life of its own. And so that's, you know, I went through the looker acquisition and the customer acquisition and a few others. And so there's a sort of like this point of like no return where people are committed to the acquisition and barring like either violent disagreement with the board or completely dissatisfactory terms, it will likely happen. So one firm, one acquirer comes into the conversation, management team decides and board decides this is a good time to explore this. Then you'll spin up an auction, right? You'll either hire an investment banker or you'll talk to other people who have expressed interest in the past and you create a data room. You bring, you create a small team of people who are in the know, ideally the smallest possible and the board. And at that point, the board probably starts meeting every week or every 10 days where there are scheduled calls just to get an update on what's happening in the process and the negotiations. And then you get to a point where the term sheet is signed and the point between when the term sheet is signed, a letter of intent is signed and the close is an extremely weak part. The company is the most vulnerable there um, because it has committed itself and indicated to the broader market and the employees that it has been sold, but it must continue to operate independently. We went through this with Looker, you were there for, I think it was 12 months where we had to operate in this sort of limbo between the market thought we were acquired, but we couldn't act as if we were acquired. And, you know, are we hiring people with Google shares? Are we hiring people with Looker shares? How does that all work? There's just a lot of complexity. I think we called it limbo land. Um, <laughs> yeah. You're yeah. It was, expected you know, we're, to run your business as you see fit, but not really. It's a real challenge. Uh, and so there's a lot of complexity there. And you, you did a marvelous job. I mean, you cannot. Oh, it was the great, wonderful team, wonderful exec team. And no one to your question, just being honest about it is half the battle, right? This is hard. Here's what's going on versus just silence and everyone kind of waiting there. But it was, it felt like three years. I can't even imagine what it would be like to be an employee in that situation. Well, the hard part with venture on this too, and you know, Tom, probably if I'm wrong, the people that go into these companies, they're not trying to hang out all day, and not do stuff. <laughs> like they're there to push, they're there to build, they're energetic, they're competitive, they're mission oriented, they want to add value. And so being in limbo land with that type of disposition is very difficult, very difficult. Kelly, how did you navigate the comms of that? So like walk us through the, okay, you get looped in, I'm assuming at, at some point, like into this data room piece that Tom was referring to, right? The the LOI gets signed, right? And like walk us through, like how how did you communicate to the company and like how did you navigate 12 months of purgatory? It's the leadership of the, of the group, really. I mean, Frank was amazing, right? He is as real as they come, as human as they come, and just talking through this. The other interesting thing is these these acquisitions usually come as disruptive to a course you're on, right? We had S1 work streams kicked off. I mean, we were on our way and they some of the most successful best acquisitions kind of take a hard right turn. So it was it was the change around that plus that confidentiality. And for me, the most difficult part wasn't the communication. I think you know, there was a lot of apprehension because Looker is so unique and potent as a culture. 
uh, and who they were. And so that that apprehension of going into Google was one thing. How do I navigate this new environment? But for me, you know, Tom was talking about these unique aspects of the deal. It was the offers, right? And it was the organizational slotting, right? Taking these very creative people who were so non-hierarchical and trying to fit them into a 25 you know, level leveling structure that's splitting hairs and really important, by the way. Once you're in a structure at Google, it's it's like Fort Knox to get out of it or change it. So that was probably the most nuanced part of the employee side was making sure that we were setting lookers up for success in that new structure in ways that they didn't even know was necessary until a year into the company when the perf cycle happened, right? And then on top of that, one of the criteria for the deal going through, Tom, was that 85% or more of lookers had to sign that offer letter for the deal to go through. Uh, and there was international complexities. There was this, there was that. So it was quite the the team effort, first of all, but doing the right thing for your employees and not rushing that was nice. That was the benefit of the purgatory. We had time to make sure that was great. I think we had 100% of offers signed, actually, if I recall. That's insane three-dimensional chess. Tom, what about when it's not looker and it's not a multi-billion dollar acquisition and it's more of like a this thing isn't going to work out walk us through how those work so my mental model is there's three kinds of acquisitions there are team acquisitions there's team technology acquisitions and then team technology and revenue and roughly like the team acquisitions are zero to 50 maybe zero to 25 today the team and technology let's call it 25 to 150 and then the team technology and revenue and these are just rough numbers 150 plus when it doesn't work out, uh, typically what ends up happening is a company runs up against its financials and the board says, and or the founder decides, it's time to sell the business. And there, unlike in the very large acquisitions, you likely don't have a banker to help you. And you're looking at a bunch of different structures. You might be looking at uh, an aqua hire, so just buying the team. And then the company and its assets and liabilities resolve or they're sold to somebody else. Or uh, the other is you buy the team and just like intellectual property, but the liabilities remain with the company. And then the last is you buy the whole thing. And typically those are done. Looker, we did a few of these very small acquisitions. Uh, they're called token acquisitions, mainly for people. And the, those people typically get uh, maybe a signing bonus, a bit higher of an equity package relative to a new person coming in. I mean, most of these acquisitions are executed by relationships. When a company is bought, whether it's a big one or a small one, there is somebody inside of the business who is basically staking their career on this acquisition. We should buy this business for this particular reason. The very large companies, the very large acquisitions, there are BD teams that are building business cases and a, a GM is signing up for a three to a five-year financial plan that correlates to ultimate market cap increase and revenue increases. At the really small level, it's probably a CEO of another private company who says, we really need this technology for this particular roadmap. And here's the cost savings that we get by buying this team, as opposed to trying to hire a team and build the product ourselves. Tom, just shifting to, to the rest of this year, going into next year, where's the puck going in VC? I mean, obviously like AI is super hot. It seems like seed in series A is, is still ripping, although you know maybe at lower valuations. The growth stages, though, is where I think a lot of people have a lot of questions. And I'm curious to just get your general sentiment on where venture-backed tech companies are going uh, end of this year into next year. 
So I think this is a question that's probably the most, the most determinant for the health of the ecosystem. One of the big questions is what will the Fed do with rates? That's a big one. Diamond just said yesterday, Jamie Diamond is the CEO of JP Morgan, that he expects rates to go to 7%, which nobody was expecting, currently at five and a half. If that happens, then I think the growth market continues to be dysfunctional into next year. Setting that aside, let's just say rates stay where they are at five and a half percent or somewhere close. What we're starting to see is the bid ask spread. So what companies are asking versus what VCs are willing to pay, that's coming closer and closer. To give you a sense, uh, the secondary market spread was about 70%. So there was 70% difference between what the buy side and the sell side was asking for. And now that's kind of closer, like 20, maybe 15%. So we're starting to see it come back. It's still not there, there. Um, but as more companies need to raise capital, it's coming closer and closer. So current course and speed, I think you'll see the market being functional late this year into early next year. The IPO market, the Clavio IPO in particular, in the software world has traded very nicely. I think you'll see a lot of S1s happen in the back half of this year, particularly as some of the fangs are hampered by the FTC's investigations for uh, antitrust. And so more companies will choose to go public than I think sell themselves for that reason. And there seems to be a lot of institutional investor demand for some of these new IPOs. So I think the more successful those are, the more vibrant the uh, mid-stage part of the uh, venture market will be too. And, and then just on AI, you're a leading voice in VC on AI. What are you most excited about? I was wondering about the relative productivity and GDP gains of the personal computer versus AI. And all the studies I could find suggest that AI will have something like at least a thousand times more impact to productivity than the personal computer did. And even if that's wrong by a factor of like 20 or 50, I think we will see a huge increase in productivity, which is awesome. Um, it's really important for the U.S. as a country. It's really important for our economy. And I think there'll need to be a significant amount of like retraining and we'll all have to learn how to use our computers again in almost every white collar function. And I'm really excited about that. Like I, I think it's easy to have a very negative view of it. In the early 1900s, there were 4 million people washing dishes and then the home dishwasher was made and or invented and, and the, um, commercial dishwasher was made and all those people were repurposed in, into other functions, working at a higher level of abstraction, more interesting work. I think that's what will happen with AI. And uh, I'm, I'm really excited about that. I think um, it'll allow us to get a lot more leverage from these amazing computers that we've been able to build. Last question for you is if you were an executive and you were thinking about joining one of these AI companies, right now, it's, it's actually hard to tell what's real and what's not. Like we're still in the first inning. How would you evaluate that decision? I think the first thing I'd really care about would be the strength of the team. And I think the second thing that I'd really care about would be, so it, it depends on like the infrastructure and the application layer, but let's say I'm looking to work at a software company at the application layer. I would really want to go after a market where there was no significant incumbent. There was no Salesforce or Zendesk, or if there were, they were completely reinventing the software. And what I mean by this is, when the App Store came out, the first wave of mobile applications were little chiclet boxes around web pages. And then Foursquare came, and that was a mobile native app. And then Uber came out, and that was a mobile native app. I don't think we've really yet seen the first AI native application where from architecture, from infrastructure, from the product design decisions, it was built for AI, right? And 
I would be looking for an application that looks like that, where you've never seen it before, looks completely different. And if it works, like you can, you can make a big debt. <laughs> so Tom, as we gear towards closing, any tactical advice you'd offer for our audience of either HR folks or founders or both as we enter this new year? I, I think if things continue to go as they are, the very best companies will be the ones who, whose reaction time to changing economic conditions in the positive sense are faster. So there will be a point in time, and I can't tell you when, but there will be a point in time when the market does return. And the companies who are much more aggressive on hiring and building out the sales and marketing functions, particularly when they start to see like outperformance or increase in efficiencies, the ones who are courageous in doing that, I think can capture another 10 or 15 or 20 points of market share and all of a sudden be worth like 50 to 60% more. And so that's, if I look at the companies that I work with and the advice that I'm giving some of them, particularly the ones who are in strong positions, I'm trying to pay as close attention as possible as some of those leading signals of the market returning and the buyer behavior coming back, predictability in sales cycles, sales cycles decreasing our performance. Because if you can be aggressive there, you can really improve the value of the company. Get back on the offense. It's very counterintuitive to the fear mongering. I think that's like out there right now and quite refreshing to hear from my standpoint. So Tom, I really appreciate the time. This was insanely valuable to me and I know our listeners are going to love it. Well, it was such a privilege to be with you both. Thanks for the invitation. There's conflict in the Middle East, Kelly. And a lot of founders and CHROs are asking themselves, how do we talk about this situation? And so I'll give you just a little insight into the way that we think about it at Continuum. I, I don't know if this is right, but I'm just going to tell you what we do. And I would love to get your take on things. We follow the Brian Armstrong. We don't talk about politics at work. In general, we are trying to build a business. And ultimately, we want to be so successful that our employees get wealthy from this experience and that they can allocate their wealth to solve problems that we cannot solve as a business. So Kelly, I'm, I'm actually curious about your take and how you guys think about this and how you specifically think about solving this problem. I will speak to this more generally in my experience as a chief people officer, and it's actually not to not talk about things at work. I tend to take the, the middle ground on a lot of things and try and be inclusive, as inclusive as possible, but with clear boundaries, if that makes sense. So for us, a lot of the the pieces around this was talk about it with groups of people that feel comfortable talking about it versus company-wide channels, et cetera, that are really there for doing business. So clubs, specific affinity groups, lunchtime meetings, communities of silence, other chat groups, right? We, we never shut that down. We actually encourage that. I do like the boundary element, though, as far as it's seeping in to the day-to-day. And for me, it's never never been easy, right? Because in our roles, we might have different viewpoints. And as an example, I had a situation once, right? I'm LGBTQ. I have a wife, et cetera. And we have an LGBTQ affinity group. Most do. And I had someone say, look, I want an affinity group for Christian conservative values, that are yes against the LGBT, you know, and we had to deal with that. And it was like, hmm, like, right, that inclusivity, I think, is a very, very common denominator that we have to solve for is even if it's like 1% of 100, everyone should feel 
like they have a voice, but where you put that voice and how you have that voice interact with company wide values and where we do business. I think that's the work. So did you draw the line or did you create a new group? We did not allow for a, again, a company sponsored affinity group. Cause again, I'm like, damn, what's, what's the backbone? Like, how do I simplify? And that affinity group would fly in the face of one of our biggest values, which is respect for all. That example is exactly the reason why I don't want to talk about it at work. Cause creating that line is it's arbitrary. It is arbitrary and it does take a lot of time. So you're saying that you didn't even have it anywhere. Yeah, we put it in our culture docs explicitly stating we do not talk about politics at work. Our take is, is that many of these topics are controversial and just getting even into that context and nuance takes up a ton of time and is a distraction. And so I I know it's not like the warm and fuzzy culture. I do believe companies should indicate to candidates during the interview process how they view politics at work and let candidates either opt in or opt out. Because once somebody is there and then if you change policies on them, it's a little bit unfair because they accepted a job, you know, with with a premise or a guise of how they expected you to respond And then you move the ball around on them. And that's where I do think Coinbase did it right, is they said, look, we are changing our policy and we are also allowing you to opt out and we will give you severance to opt out. And I think that's done really well. And I think a lot of companies are now following in their footsteps. I personally think that we should allow some of this conversation at work. I think it's going to happen anyway, Nolan, whether you have your handbook or not. We talked about this in our Patty episode, like sometimes things are slippery slopes, And all of a sudden, everything is in that consideration set. So I do applaud folks like you that are like, no, keep it out. But I think that it's going to seep in anyway, I guess. is There's not a perfect answer, I think, is, is the short answer here. And unfortunately, founders and chief people officers do have to figure out their stance and how they navigate these issues. And so all I can recommend is to think about it beforehand. Because when you're in it, tensions rise and it's really easy uh, to get pulled along in a narrative um, or onto one side as to where you should be. And if you think about it beforehand and how you're going to respond to these sorts of things, hopefully it provides a little bit more clarity when you actually are in the fog of war. Like I remember when George Floyd happened and whatnot. I mean, we had leaders running around grabbing HR leaders like toddlers on their pant leg being like, what do I do? What do I do? What do I do? And that wasn't that long ago. This is, I think this is, this is fairly new. It it absolutely is. I'm not saying it should be like that. Well, and that's, but that's kind of my point is like, there is a new expectation from employees that a company comments every, for every situation that happens. I don't think that's a fair expectation. I think your stance on it is we will comment, but we will say, we don't know. This is really hard. And that's that's fair. I think another take that more companies are starting to lean into is we're just not going to comment and talk about it. It's not perfect because you don't want people to be robots. Um, And I don't expect that. But I, I do think now in this new world with higher interest rates, 
valuations lower, harder to fundraise, companies have to focus on building real businesses. I don't think we will have a choice. It's like another fucking thing to solve. But if you solve it when there isn't a crisis, I think it's a lot better for everybody. I agree. I, but I, like I said, I think it will be part of the table stakes, like intake form of what companies need to think about going forward. Totally. But let's also empathize. This shit is not easy. Like a lot of times companies, founders, even chief people officers avoid leaning into this until they have to because it's scary. And there is fear of what the responses are and what the reactions are. And if I can avoid it and not deal with any reaction, that might be less distracting. But I think we are getting to a point now where that's going to be more and more impossible. I think it is impossible. I think we're already there. The more you try and tuck this thing under the rug, the bigger the problem becomes and the harder it is to solve. For me, this is the future of work conversation. That is the real conversation around the future of work that nobody's having. HR Heretics is a podcast from Turpentine, the network behind Econ 102, Moment of Zen, and Turpentine VC. Subscribe, five stars, share it on Apple, YouTube, Spotify, anywhere you get your podcasts, all the things.